going maskless in Indiana. The first week without the mask mandate means the rules are different all across the state. We'll hear from the governor as he defends his decision. Familiar faces deciding whether to run again. What two well-known former candidates say about their political future. And Mike Braun weighs in. Republican senator gives his take on the issues facing Hoosiers at home and in Washington. It's all ahead this Sunday in Focus. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bob Donaldson, in for Dan. Indiana's statewide mask mandate is now a mask advisory. This is now the first weekend in nine months where a mask is not required everywhere across the state. Earlier this week, Governor Eric Holcomb defended his decision to lift that mandate. I still couldn't be more clear about the need to play this through to the very end. Make sure, as was said inside, under the tent, uh, to practice physical distancing, six feet. Outdoors is better than indoors. Wear a mask when you're around others. I'm going to continue to do that. It's now up to local and county health departments to set any COVID restrictions. So far, 14 counties are lifting the mandate. Several others, including Marion and Monroe counties, are keeping their mandates. This week, Indiana Senator Mike Braun was in the state and defended his fellow Republican for lifting that mandate. I've been one from the get-go that said, pay attention, respect it, and I think that has pretty well ended up being the case. On the other hand, I was a little bit unhappy with mandates and things coming from the top down, whether it was the federal government to states, states to counties. But I think in Indiana, we've done a decent job. Uh, our economy reflects it. We'll hear more from Senator Braun on his recent trip to Mexico to the Mexican border. That's just ahead. Late this week, Governor Holcomb vetoed a bill that would have limited his powers in an emergency. Some have called that bill unconstitutional. Kayla Sullivan explains how this issue will likely be settled in court. It's very rare that you have the, you know, the same party suing each other in court over constitutionality of, of an issue. But that's a large possibility over House Bill 1123. It allows Indiana lawmakers to call themselves into session during a statewide public emergency. The current state constitution only grants that power to the governor, but it doesn't say lawmakers can't. Lawmakers say, hey, the constitution is silent. So if it's silent, that means we can do it because it doesn't say we can't, which is a bit sketchy. Abdul Hakim Shabazz is an attorney and publisher of Indie Politics. He says he agrees with the governor that this is unconstitutional. Governor Eric Holcomb says he supports parts of the bill, but when asked whether he would sign it. I can answer that in four letters and it's Holcomb understands lawmakers' desire to guarantee more involvement in the process. The bill also grants them the ability to oversee spending of federal dollars during an emergency. It should be expected that we work together. And Holcomb says they've been doing that, though some lawmakers disagree. But Republican leadership says it was their choice not to call a special session during the pandemic. It's the future they're worried about. This just allows the legislative body to have an opportunity to be you know, clearly engaged. Speaker Houston says a veto override is likely, and so is a lawsuit. The courts will have a chance if they, if somebody wants to bring a constitutionality concern, obviously the courts would make that provision. A risk many lawmakers say is worth taking. From the Indiana State House, I'm Kayla Sullivan. And this week, we're getting some perspective on the fallout from this legal fight between the governor and the legislature from two former state lawmakers, former state rep Christina Hale and former state senator Jim Merritt, who both spoke with our Dan Spieler.
You served for many years in the state Senate. You're also considering a run for governor in the future yourself. How do you see this legal battle playing out here between the governor and the first branch of government, the state legislature? Well, it's to me, it's disappointing. It's upsetting. I, uh, I certainly wish the governor had, had served in the legislature. I think he would understand where, um, you know, a large majority of the members of the General Assembly voted for House Bill 1123. And, uh, and what, we're, what alley we're going down right now um, has an ending. And what the legislature has decided that, that they believe is constitutional isn't constitutional, uh, but also the governor has to realize that uh, those 150 people are the troops on the ground. And, and, and Indiana is, a, is a made up of 400 communities and those individuals have been to church and, and, and they've, had, they've been to the gym, they've been to the local store and they're hearing from their constituents. And it's, um, there's a solution here uh, and I'm just disappointed that it's gotten this far. And I think you probably know me well enough, Dan, that, that um, when you're a legislator, you, you, you decide law. You don't decide if a judge is going to consider your law constitutional. You are the end. And, and the, the judiciary is, is the third branch of government, but you make the law. And, and to be kicking it down the can, kicking the can down the alley, of, of if, if it's constitutional or not, that is not how we should do business in the state of Indiana. In terms of the pandemic itself, anything you, you would have done differently had you been serving as governor now or had you been elected mayor of Indianapolis when you ran a couple of years back? Well, uh, first of all, the, the Polk administration has done an outstanding job uh, with the vaccination, uh, with vaccinating uh, hopefully all 6.6 .6 million Hoosiers. I, uh, I have elderly parents, and it was a, it was a cluster down in Florida. But Indiana uh, is, has been well done incredibly. The governor has done his best. Um, I, I think leaving it to the county uh, health departments would have been a good idea because everybody has a different walk in life. Uh, but on the whole, uh, the, the whole administration has taken this um, enormous problem and created it somewhat like a war and I think has done a very good job with it. Former State Senator Jim Merritt, great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right, here now with Christina Hale, former state representative, former candidate for Congress. Great to see you again. No, oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. We've been talking on this program about everything going on right now with COVID-19, everything going on at the State House. You used to serve in the legislature. What do you make of this, this back and forth uh, between the governor and lawmakers in, in his own party about the governor's powers in the midst of a pandemic? Well, it's kind of epically awkward, isn't it? You know, when you have a supermajority and that's one party that doesn't even need any member from the minority in the room, they've, they're, you know, uh, likely going to be overturning a veto from a sitting governor. That doesn't happen every day. And I think the internal politics there have to be pretty interesting, especially when, you know, all that we seem to see on the news are a bunch of smiles. I don't think they're they're smiling behind the scenes.
Yeah, a lot going on there, no doubt about it. Uh, you just wrote an op-ed uh, with a, a number of other Democrats uh, about the, the situation and the political dynamic in Washington. Um, Republican lies helped defeat us in 2020 is the title. We're going to shield House Democrats in 2020. Uh, they write, Republicans hope to win House control back by connecting swing district Democrats to ideologies, policies, and slogans they reject. We'll be ready this time is, is the title. What does this mean in the 5th District, where you were in a close race, you lost to Congresswoman Sparts. How do you see things evolving next time around as we move toward 2022? And are you interested in running again yourself? No, I, but I continue to be interested in telling the truth. And, you know, that's just a cornerstone of our democracy. And I'll tell you, if I had a nickel for any time somebody said to me, but Christina, all those commercials, you know, and you just hear lies repeated time and time again. I tell you, it was really hard on my family. Um, I sure don't like to see it. And we've seen some really good people lose their seats. Sitting members like Social Tour Small, New Mexico, who faced just outright lies as I did. You know, I am a proud capitalist and I can't tell you how many times, you know, commercials, mail that would come to the home, you know, calling me a socialist. It's absolutely not true. And as the granddaughter of somebody who fled communist Cuba, um, it got quite personal for me as well with my family. You're not interested in, in, in running again a second time or is it something you might consider? Oh, you know, I'm really looking right now just to support good public policy. I think we're going to have some very different looking congressional maps. You know what it's like, too. I mean, everybody, it comes down to all the hyperbole and the, the name calling the last really 60 days of a campaign cycle. And this effort too is about getting the word out ahead of time so people can learn the truth, know who their elected officials are, know what their records truly are, and that, that we're people that are supporting good business, um, good families, and opportunity for everybody. Former State Representative Christina Hale, thank you so much for being with us. Great to see you again. Oh, thank you. It's good to see you. Almost 172,000 people stopped at the U.S.-Mexico border in March. That was the most U.S. Customs and Border Protection has seen in one month in at least 15 years. Of them, 19,000 were children and teenagers traveling without a parent. Sheriffs from across the U.S. are sending a letter to President Biden urging him to make changes at the border to keep migrants from coming over unchecked. Indiana Senator Mike Braun just returned from a trip to the border where he toured migrant detention facilities in Texas. He called the experience an eye-opener. It was just uh, overwhelming to see uh, how big the surge was when we were in the facility. Uh, just very overcrowded. It was a lot worse than what I imagined because we were getting filtered information recently. Comprehensive immigration reform, uh, it's got to be done, uh, in my opinion, but it's got to be based upon a secure border. And I think you complete the wall, especially to the point where you had it contracted. Democrats say they're scrambling to fix the systems that were dismantled by the Trump administration meant to help deal with asylum seekers and migrants. Coming up next this Sunday in Focus, President Joe Biden pushing gun reform after six mass shootings in the U.S. in just the past month.
Our panel weighs in. And with the NCAA tournament in the rearview mirror, we're looking to the future. What it means potentially for Indy playing host again. Welcome back. Let's bring in our panel now. Jennifer Wagner, the former communications director for the Indiana Democrats. Mike Murphy, former Republican state representative. Robin Winston, former Indiana Democratic Party chair. And Tony Samuel, the 2016 vice chair of the Indiana Trump campaign. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Let's start with the uh, mask mandate. Jennifer, I'll start with you. Cases are up in Indiana. Is it too soon whether to say that the governor made a mistake in going with a mask advisory and not the mask mandate? Well, I'm not sure it's a, a mistake. I said, you know, last week, and I'll continue to say that I wish that he'd kept the mandate in place because I think, you know, it does send a signal to people to to, to do the right thing by science and, uh, and mask up when they're close together. But, you know, look, I'm sitting outside, socially distanced. I think people understand now the, the limitations of, uh, you know, the uh, mask um, outside. So, you know, I think, look, it'd be better if we had the mandate. Hopefully Hoosiers will continue to do the right thing and the common sense thing and, and stay masked up so we can get those numbers back down. Well, Mike, is this really about local control at the end of the day, counties having more control, cities having more control about what happens in their communities? Well, I think there's certainly an element of that. I mean, the governor has done a tremendous job of getting us to this point, the first state in the nation, for example, to open vaccinations up to 16-year-olds. I mean, nobody would have thought that was possible a year ago. And it's now time to, uh, to let uh, this, the county health department officials make those individual calls um, obviously, Marion County has been making some individual calls um, all along. I think I think the governor's done an outstanding job, and uh, it's so it's okay to let some local folks uh, make decisions here toward the end, so to speak. Robin, one week in, is there anything that we've learned? Is it just really a matter of timing whether or not the governor took action too soon? Because eventually, mask mandates are going to be falling as we get more and more people vaccinated. Correct. Uh, correct. But governments are interdependent. State governments works with the federal government. Missing in this equation is the fact that the president has helped make sure over 150 million doses have been distributed across our country. That's one reason we ought to keep up everything possible to make sure that we use our mask to do the social distancing so that we can counter this pandemic and have a better year. Okay, Tony, I'll give you the last word on this topic. I mean, is this just a matter of personal responsibility and, and trusting Hoosiers to do the right thing? Yeah, you said it, uh, Bob, and, and I said this last week as well, that uh, Hoosiers are smart enough to know what's best for them, and they've been educated over this last year. Um, it's all, you know, nobody can say that they don't know what's going on and they don't uh, believe that masks are important. Um, and they, they, have, you know, they should have uh, the ability to make their own decisions after all of the information and everything we've seen and, and uh, friends and loved ones either coming down with it or, or families being affected. Uh, I think the mask mandate has run its course and we can make our own decision. You can wear a mask for the rest of your life if you want to, but uh, this thing has, has uh, gone in waves up and down whether we've been wearing masks or not. Uh, it's coming down, people are getting vaccinated. 
and it's time to end the mandate and let us make our own uh, uh, personal decisions. I very quickly want to touch upon the debate that's going on right now about how much power the governor should have in, in declaring public emergencies. Jennifer, I'll ask you, I mean, uh, is this something that's just going to end up in the courts and uh, whether or not the constitutionality of it is really spelled out in the Indiana Constitution? Yeah, Bob, I don't often use my law degree. It sits in the garage, but uh, this one's kind of a no-brainer that uh, it's going to wind up in the courts. Uh, I think the legislature's uh, once again doing a bit of an overreach this session. I think you even saw, you know, former gubernatorial candidate uh, John Gregg, former House Speaker John Gregg, come out this week and agree with the governor that uh, this is this is too much. You know, it's the legislature needs to stay in the legislature's lane and let uh, the governor do the, uh, the executive branch functions, especially in times of an emergency. Mike, can I get some perspective from you? I mean, you have a Republican governor, the uh, Republican-dominated legislature. This is very unusual to have this kind of a disagreement, isn't it? I haven't seen it in 40 years. Um, you know, when, when uh, legislators have challenged previous governors, Doc Bowen in 1973, for example, on the property tax reform, he kept a uh, roll call of that vote in his desk. And every time a legislator came to ask him for a favor, he'd pull out the roll call and see how they voted. The bottom line is the legislators, and I was one for some time, are important from uh, January to the end of April. And after that, they go home and resume their lives and the governor's still there. The governor always wins. And I think the legislature is way overreaching in what is clearly, what they know is clearly an unconstitutional measure. And uh, I think the aftermath uh, for legislators will, will frankly not be pretty. President Biden is taking executive action to uh, curb gun violence. This comes after multiple mass shootings in recent weeks. The president's directives call on the Department of Justice to ban stabilizing braces and pistols on pistols and stopping ghost guns. My job, the job of any president, is to protect the American people. Whether Congress acts or not, I'm going to use all the resources at my disposal as president to keep the American people safe from gun violence. For conservatives, uh, people like me that believe that you get into areas like that, you start cascading into broader restrictions on law-abiding citizens. These actions are limited and will likely see legal opposition from gun rights advocates. Robin Winston, I'll bring you into the conversation. What is your reaction? These moves are fairly modest. Well, the president is trying to stake out a claim that, you know, we don't need to have a proliferation of ghost guns, which law enforcement is against also. And we need to really work on background checks and trying to make sure that we don't have a proliferation of guns on the street. I still never understood why someone needs an AR-15 in an urban area or an M4. And those have been used to wreak havoc in the workplace, in shopping centers, in offices, and, and even in homes. The president's on the right track, and I believe the American people I believe he's on the right track on this one. Tony, there's going to be opposition to even these executive orders, even if they are limited. Yeah, there is. Um, and I'm not sure if he'll be successful, but he's uh, it's a start for him. And they're going to, like Senator Braun was saying, they're going to uh, try to take away more and more of uh, chip away at the Second Amendment. We have to protect our Second Amendment rights. Nobody wants to see gun violence, uh, but we have to enforce the laws that are on the books. We have to do what we can to educate folks. We have to stop uh, illegal guns from coming into this country. There's a whole host of things that we need to do. We need to support 
law enforcement. So people have the right to, to carry guns. And, and uh, with this pandemic and the riots that we saw uh, throughout uh, all, cities throughout the country, cities and small towns, uh, you know, you saw an increase in folks buying guns. And there's a reason for that because they know that they have the right and need that right to protect themselves. All right. Our thanks to our panel. We'll see you again for winners and losers later. Still ahead this Sunday on In Focus, Indianapolis closing the door on its March Madness hosting duties. What the NCAA is saying about the future of sports tournaments in the Circle City. Now that the excitement has died down following March Madness, businesses and the NCAA reflecting on how Indy handled the tournament, NCAA officials giving high praise to the city and the hospitality industry for making it a successful and safe spot for thousands to come. The NCAA says more than 173,000 fans were in attendance. And out of the more than 28,000 COVID tests done during the tournament, 15 were positive. They say this gives them hope moving forward. Incredibly appreciative of the entire Indianapolis community, indeed the state of Indiana, um, for helping us to put on this historic and memorable event. NCAA officials say knowing how well things went this past month only shows them Indianapolis is a great spot to host major events and championships. We'll be right back with this week's winners and losers. Stay with us. All right, we'll bring back our panel for this week's winners and losers. Jennifer, we'll start with you. Uh, my winner has to be our beautiful Circle City here. We absolutely crushed it with the uh, NCAA and March Madness. My loser has to be Matt Gates, the uh, congressman out of Florida, who's a uh, Sex scandal just keeps getting worse and worse. All right, Mike, you're up. Winner has to be the Wall Street Journal for recognizing today that Indianapolis has the fourth best job market in the nation. And the loser has to be um, the lack of passing a uh, cigarette tax increase for probably, what, maybe 10 years in a row now. We're the fourth leading smoking state in the nation. It's, it's abominable. Robin, your thoughts? My thoughts go to the family of Michael Gaines, a bartender at St. Elmo's Steakhouse, iconic institution in our community, but he really did make it resonate with the people that came in there. Our prayers are to you, Mr. Gaines. Tony, last word. Winner is the city of Indianapolis and the state putting on the NC2A tournament. Also, I'm kind of a winner. I picked uh, Baylor in my bracket, so hey, happy about that. There you go. Thanks for joining us this week. Much more on our podcast. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus.